It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Tonight, where do we go from here? Featuring Stacey Abrams, Bishop William J. Barber II, Charles Blow, Keisha Lance Bottoms, Ava DuVernay, Jennifer Everhart, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Ibram Kindi, David Oyelowo, Rashad Robinson. What matters now? What matters next? What do we want? What are our demands? Where do we go from here? Part one begins now. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Own Spotlight. And we come to you on this day, which represents the final memorial of George Floyd. And just like in our own families, often we can't begin to process what's happened until after the burial or the memorial service. This is where we are now as a people and as a country. You know, I've been talking on television about racism now for over 35 years. And I remember it was back in back in the day, in 1985, I was the host of a local talk show in Chicago. Before we'd even gone national, I had a white teacher on named Jane Elliott, who created the famous uh, brown-eyed, blue-eyed experiment, which explores racial prejudice. And I remember in that moment, recognizing how little so many white people understood about racism. And over the years of The Oprah Show, I did over 100 shows on racism. I did a town hall in Forsyth County, Georgia, where they had tried to ban Black people in the whole city. We came to L.A. for the Rodney King beating and L.A. riots and did our show from here. And also had many heroes of the civil rights movement, the Little Rock Nine, and a room filled with the original remaining freedom riders. In all those experiences, though, I, I don't recall a moment quite like this one, because we find our nation on a precipice, a true tipping point, I believe. And just like all of you for the past few weeks, I've been talking and Zooming with friends, and the same question keeps popping up over and over. Is this the moment that will finally change our country, where people recognize systemic racism for the problem and the evil that it is? And those are the questions we're talking amongst ourselves about. Where do we go from here? And what is it that we really want? So I wanted to bring those conversations to the light 
and gather critical thinkers who match their words with their actions, because that is what we need next, action. And tonight, we're gonna have an open conversation about where do we go from here? And I know from experience that we can't even begin until we acknowledge the hurt and the pain which we've all seen as, as, and felt as visceral. And just like in your own family, uh, the family that is our country, I don't believe can move forward without calling out that pain. Just like in your own family, when somebody's done something to you, you can't forgive until that pain has been called out and acknowledged. So I wanna ask this group about the collective anger, the, 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 the grief and trauma that tens of millions of people are feeling all at once in this moment. So I wanted to start with some of the men tonight because I think for all of us, watching the, the, the life seep from George Floyd's body caused a kind of universal shock uh, and pain. For black people everywhere, we recognize that knee on the neck. But I think that if you are a black man, I can only just imagine that it's even more primal. Charles Blow is a best-selling author and op-ed columnist for the New York Times. And Charles, you recently wrote this in the New York Times. You said, we must recognize that to have to live in a world, in a society in which you feel that your life is constantly under threat because of the color of your skin is also a form of violence. You wrote, it is a daily ambient gnawing violence. So I wanna know how are you coping with your own anger and grief? Thank you for having me. And that's an interesting question because my emotional reaction to these things has transformed. It is it has become exhausted. I now see that the country is not responsive to black pain. And so to ex my continue express and yell and wail of it does not get the reaction that I think that it deserves. Uh, and so then it becomes an issue of, so what do we do beyond that? Because you just described 35 years of energy put into this conversation. Mm -hmm. I think about all the years of energy I put in this conversation. I think about all the years of all the heroes in history put into this conversation. And I think, what? You know, time, energy, passion are limited commodities in our life. What could I have created? What, what work could I have done? How much deeper could I have loved my family and my kids mm. without having to transfer that pain and tell them to put their hands up and tell them don't run if their friends run? So are you saying that, that there's a kind of numbness that happens, I imagine, uh, a kind of numbness? So when you saw the video for the first time of the police officer Chauvin's uh, 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 knees on his neck. He, he, what, what was your reaction? Or were you just... Well, like, was, I recognized, and, you know, as I'm a writer, so I recognized and immediately wanted to document the casualness of the killer. Yeah. You know, the sunglasses are pushed back on his forehead. He doesn't, he doesn't even move enough to disturb the sunglasses on his forehead as he's passing ah. the life out of that man. That's uh, interesting. Uh, I hadn't noticed that. Yes, there was the casualness of the hands in the pocket. But I hadn't even noticed. Midway his head and it never moved. Mm. Um, 
And the idea, and, and, and I, I also thought in that moment about the, the prescriptions that we've had before, that we are, people say, well, we need uh, body cams on everybody. Well, I think that may be helpful, but this man knew that he was being filmed. He saw the, the 17 year old with the camera on him and he did not care. They was pressing their life out of that man. So I don't believe that there's really necessarily a technological fix to a cultural problem. I think I do think we have to start looking but much bigger than at least kind of inflammatory moments and say, this is about power. Mm. This is about power. This has always been about power. It's just that the police are the lowest cog in this machine. That's the one that touches you. But they were born out of a need to, to uh, protect property and control bodies. And you know the, the crime that was being committed in the beginning was the slave was running away. Yeah. Like, in the South, they come under a slave patrol. And it has never really recuperated from this idea of protecting the powerful's property and controlling the bodies of people who are subject to the system and they feel that pressure and they try to get out of control and they want to control it. Tamp it down. Don't Got let it. it get out of control. Well, David Oyelowo is an actor and filmmaker who portrayed Dr. Martin Luther King in, in the Oscar-nominated film Selma. And David, um, I know you had a strong reaction when you saw the knee on the neck. You posted an emotional video where you told the story of your own father and abuses against him, and then passing your son's room and hearing him cry over this. What do you want to say? Tell us why you wanted to share that. Because of the cycle and how it is being perpetuated and perpetuated and perpetuated. I am of Nigerian descent. Um, I've spent a, a decent amount of my life in Africa. Uh, I was born in the UK, so I've spent a decent amount of my life in Europe. And I'm now an American citizen, and I've spent 13 years here. And in every one of those continents, as it pertains to Black people, whether it's living in a post-colonial Nigeria or Britain, who were one of the creators of this evil, um, in my opinion, um, and then farmed it out to the world of marginalization, enslavement, rape, and stealing from that continent, and America, where this has become a 400-year sin um, that we are perpetually being the victims of. Um, I posted it because I had made the mistake of thinking that things would be different for my son. I, I say mistake because I had watched things progress in some ways, and then the knee on the neck is so symbolic of so much. It's something I didn't realize that I had internalized in a way that makes it difficult for me to function. I didn't realize how deep the wounds were. I have spent so much of the last two weeks crying. And, and one of the moments where that began was when I went to speak to my son and I didn't have the words mm -hmm. because George Floyd wasn't resisting arrest. So it's not like saying to my son, 
put your hands on the dash, don't be confrontational. Those conversations are already emasculating to basically say, forget about justice in an interaction with the police. Yes. Come home alive. Yeah. And for everybody who's watching who is not Black, that is the conversation, that is the talk that every Black parent has had to have with their children, particularly their sons. I want to ask some of our, our, our women on the panel here, you know, for centuries, women have been watching their men being uh, hung and killed, and that's had a devastating impact on generations. So would you speak to that, Nicole? Yeah, I mean, first, I just want to say women have also been lynched and killed, uh, Black women in this country. And Breonna Taylor was killed in her own home uh, prior to George Floyd being killed. So right. this has been a collective uh, racialized terrorism against Black Americans, no matter their gender and really no matter their age. Uh, it is an enduring legacy. Almost all of us have a story of uh, an ancestor having to escape the South for fear of being lynched uh, or an ancestor having been lynched or near lynched. Um, so I guess what I try to explain in some of my writings is there is a, a collective grief that Black Americans feel where white Americans have often viewed these as individual incidents. Black Americans understand that this is part of a collective history. And when we see this, we always know that this can happen to our own communities. Um, I think that the thing that Charles is really speaking to is this weariness with the fact that it has to take something so absolutely horrifying, like watching a police officer kneel on someone's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds until all of the life is literally seeped out of him, for white Americans to decide they can't tolerate it anymore. That this is what happened with Emmett Till. This is why Dr. King had to bring children uh, to the Children's March, because there is a sense that white Americans will tolerate so much pain, so much suffering, uh, the lack of Black Americans having their civil rights and full citizenship until something so egregiously horrifying occurs that they can no longer be in denial about that. And I think we're just tired as Black people of having to prove our humanity only when the most inhumane thing happens to us. Yeah. Ava, I see you nodding. Yes. You know, I... I, I uh... A lot of my thoughts this week have been around, you know, being sick of this conversation of, you know, the ask or demanding or, um, you know, trying to literally be in conversation uh, about this, not from a place of, I don't know, black militancy, a from a place of personal exhaustion, generational exhaustion, with the idea that our attention has to be on problem solving this inside of a framework that was built for this very, very moment. It's not a broken system. It was mm -hmm. built this way. It was built to function exactly as it is. So I feel it's disingenuous for us as a society to act as if we're suddenly horrified when, you know, everyone has participated in this, benefited from it, not for years, decades, um, centuries you know, generations. And so what I've been trying to interrogate for myself is how do we, um, you know, protect ourselves, survive and thrive 
um, without having to engage in the same conversations. And that's what I'm hearing everyone say, these same conversations that our ancestors, our elders have had. And I think so much of those conversations are centered on educating Caucasian people to the trauma, you know, walking them through what it is, you know, making sure that they feel and sustain that outrage. All of that has a place and it's valuable, but you know, if we look to history, we know that there are actions to take that can sit outside of a framework of permission, outside of a framework of asking for that, um, outside of a framework of hand-holding folks through um, a process that it seems never quite takes hold. And so that's my real, real, uh, uh, my own work is to try to, you know, break out of the constant education of folks and to really ask white folks who feel deeply about this issue to take on that labor for themselves. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of us have gotten calls and emails and texts and come speak here and interviews and that kind of thing, but that's taken, to Charles's point, that's taken time away from work that we could have been doing in another area. And so I just don't want to fall into that mistake. And I feel like uh, this is a moment to to reframe it um, and put our energy in a different direction. Did you know that it's Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Cardon, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meave. Plus, you can help to support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. Are you ready to unlock your inner greatness? If so, make sure to listen to my podcast, The School of Greatness, hosted by me, Lewis Howes. Join me as I sit down with world-class performers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders to uncover their secrets to success with new episodes every single week. Whether you're striving for personal growth, business mastery, or simply seeking inspiration, The School of Greatness has something for you. And you can find it on SiriusXM, Pandora, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe and follow to the show so you never miss an episode and start your journey to greatness today. Dr. Jennifer Everhart, a professor of psychology at Stanford University and the author of the book, Biased, uh, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes. Uh, I see your finger. You're, you're, you you want to get in this conversation. Hello. I do. Hello. Hello. Um, yeah, I just wanted to get into the conversation to talk about pain. Um, we feel uh, pain more, but researchers have shown that our pain matters less to other people. And so, you know, uh, public health researchers, for example, have shown that when the police uh, kill an unarmed Black person, um, it takes a toll on the mental health of African Americans, um, not just in that community, but across the, the state. Um, and that mental toll can be felt up to three months later. And we also know from research that Black people, you know, when we suffer, um, you know, others are more numb to our suffering. Um, and, and, you know, uh, even medical uh, professionals actually are more numb uh, to our suffering. So I wanted to ask you, can I, can I, can I interrupt Dr. Everhart? Um, isn't it very much like in the days of uh, Jim Crow when Black men would be lynched 
and dragged through the town as an example for other people to see, watching Black men be shot on camera and nothing happens is a, is, is a, is a triggering thing. It's like what David was saying and what Charles was saying, it, you know, there's this, there's this memory that we have of, 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 of everything that's gone on in the past. And so when this keeps occurring, it is re-traumatizing, is it not? It is, it is, definitely. And, and then the fact that uh, the brutality, right, that we're exposed to, that we're targets of, uh, just leads to more brutality because, um, you know, the numbness comes from thinking that African-Americans actually can withstand more pain than other people. And so, and, and, and that's due, there's research by uh, Sophie uh, uh, Trawalter and others showing uh, that, you know, this, this idea of, uh, you know, black people um, having a hard life, right? Um, it makes them more hard. And so when there's pain visited upon us or our bodies, people don't feel that we are um, as vulnerable to pain um, as, as other groups. When you, when a black mother loses her son, it feels the same as someone else, a, a person who is not of color losing their son. They can't relate yes. to what you're saying. They can't. And when it happens over and over, it, it actually, the numbness grows. Son or daughter, I want to say, son or daughter. Mm -hmm. Professor uh, Ibram X. Kendi is director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research and the best-selling author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, which I hear all the books are sold out. I tried to get some to send to friends from Amazon. You can't get it for three more weeks. It's out of print. That must feel okay in this moment. But you said you're both enraged and energized now. Why? I mean, I'm, I'm enraged because I'm a, I'm a human being, I'm a, I'm a black human being. And, and I know that, that people are, are dead right now simply because of the color of their skin. I know that people view black people as dangerous, uh, which is quite possibly the most dangerous racist idea. And I think we're seeing precisely why, but I'm also um, alive. And, and I'm also being fueled by the resistance, uh, by people all over this country, by people all over the world who are declaring that Black Lives Matter and hopefully who are also seeking to push for transformative policy change so that Black lives can be protected. And so whenever people resist, it always fuels me. It always, you know, brings me alive. Mm. Rashad, Robinson is the president of Color of Change. It's the nation's largest online racial justice organization. And I know you're accustomed to dealing with injustices, but when you first saw the knee on the neck tape, you must have felt that not a lot has changed. Well, it's, it's complicated. I, you know, there's a, there's a mix of feelings in all of this. It's yes, we continue to deal with these issues day in and day out, but I do recognize that, um, you know, as someone who was not alive during the civil rights movement, there are ways in which things have changed and there are ways in which um, our engagement and reaction to these issues have changed. The fact of the matter is, is that we are not gonna change any of these things without changing the deep underlying structures, the ways that capitalism and uh, corporate power works and the ways in which so many of these systems are designed to protect systems and black people end up being um, sort of part of uh, the, the tools of this, being, being at the end of the tools of the state. If we believe that this is an inflection point, then we actually have to do things to upend those structures. Then we actually have to have ask and demands 
that get us to that. And so part of all of this is putting the energy on the systems that harm and hurt us. And the thing about pain, the thing about this sort of moment of pain, I do believe that um, it, when people are searching for what to do, when people are searching for uh, answers, um, activism can give people an outlet. It can give people sort of an ability to want to get involved. It can help people answer questions. But we can never mistake the presence or visibility for these moments for the power to actually change the rules. And far too often, we've hit these moments where a lot of attention, uh, front pages of newspapers, shout outs from politicians, in the social media age, lots of retweets. We mistake all of that sort of visibility for actually getting to the place where both the written and unwritten rules change. But being able to start getting more people in motion around that will help us. And so part of this is continuing to move the ball about what is acceptable and what is possible and leveraging the sort of deep engagements of people to actually make good on this moment that we're in. Thank you for that. Mayor Bottoms is the mayor of Atlanta, a city where the population is over 50% black. And Mayor, we saw you at that press conference and I know every black mother watching was feeling you in that moment. Let's, let's take a look at a few minutes of that. Above everything else, I am a mother. I am a mother to four black children in America, one of whom is 18 years old. And when I saw the murder of George Floyd, I hurt like a mother would hurt. And on yesterday, when I heard there were rumors about violent protests in Atlanta, I did what a mother would do. I called my son and I said, where are you? I said, I cannot protect you and black boys shouldn't be out today. Whoa. So let's speak about the anger in your own family and your city. Mayor Bottoms, welcome. Thank you. And um, as we were preparing to come on, I reached over into my desk drawer and I pulled out some papers that I keep nearby. These are my grandmother's grandparents and these are their slave records and documents. And I've been calling on their strength a lot this week because the question that I find myself compelled to answer, not just for my children, but for our city, is how do we get past this anger? And I keep thinking about my grandmother's grandparents and they were freed slaves and how could they get past humiliation and hurt and anger and pain? And the only thing that I keep coming back to is that they believe there was something better for their children and their children's children. And that's where we are in America. We've got to believe in word and in deed that there's something better for our children and our children's children. And it's very simple for us to look at what's a very simple problem. When you see a man getting killed and, and murdered in a street, that's a, a, it's a simple problem that we're looking at. Someone was murdered. But then the solutions aren't equally that simple. They're so much more layered and complicated. And so I think it's incumbent upon us as leaders, we've got to be able to give quick deliverables to our communities. But the longer term solutions are really where do we go from here? How do we undo this systematic racism that we are having, we are repeatedly having conversations about. 
And it's very frustrating to me because as mayor, I feel as if I'm supposed to have some answers right now, today, because that's what our communities are asking for. But as a mother and as a mayor, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling uh, with, with finding the solutions as well. And I'm feeling the whole range of emotions just like the rest of America. But something else I've called upon this week, Oprah, was just going back to the civil rights movement and looking at how did they move forward. And I pulled out the appeal for human rights that Rosalind Pope and Marianne Smith and students from the Atlanta University Center created. And they created a framework and a document and it said, these are our grievances and these are the solutions that we are looking for. Mm-hmm. And those are the conversations we've got to have going forward. Well, you know, I started having those conversations this week with friends Ava and David about exactly that. What are the grievances? What is the ask? Which is what we want to get to later in this program or certainly by tomorrow. And I think that is the conversation, really, literally, where do we go from here? Stacey Abrams is the founder of the voter advocacy organization, Fair Right. She just released her new book today. Congratulations on that. And what a prescient title, Our Time Is Now. And obviously you were writing that before you knew we were going to be going through this. But what is your perspective on the anger and the pain and this moment? I call back to both Ava and Rashad. This is about power. These are structures that are doing exactly what they were designed to do, to create and protect power. The challenge is, as Charles pointed out, we're at an inflection point where the those who should own that power is changing. And I think that we have to recognize that the generational differences that are in this moment with us, there are those who fought simply to be in the conversation. There are those in my generation who have fought to expand the conversation. And these young people don't even know what the conversation is because it's been had about them and not with them. And so I think one of our opportunities is to think about the the rage and the anguish is real and we should give them space to feel it. What we are grappling with is the fact that these are all confluent moments happening at the same time. And I, I wanna amplify not only what Nicole Hannah-Jones said about Breonna Taylor, but let's bring in Ahmaud Arbery, but let's also not forget that of the 110,000 people who have died in this country this year from COVID-19, a disproportionate number are black. When we talk about 40 million people losing their jobs, a disproportionate number are black. And when we talk about access to healthcare, a disproportionate number of those who are suffering in their homes from COVID-19 or worse, who are going to their jobs, being exposed to people who do not care about their lives are black people. And so I think we also have to recognize that while George Floyd's horrific murder was a catalyst, we are dealing with a, a confluence of events that all demand action and I think what we saw in that moment of that knee on the neck, when I saw that video, what I was reminded of is when folks go hunting for deer. If you've ever gone hunting or seen hunting happen, I, I know how to shoot. I don't do it, uh, but I, I know what it, I know what you do. And that's what that's what a hunter does on the neck of a deer, waiting for the life to ebb out, waiting for the fight to ebb out. And our moment right now is that the power is shifting, the demographics are shifting. And the reason for our time is now being the title of the book is that these are instruments that are being put in place to put us in our place. And our responsibility is to understand those instruments, understand the levers of power. 
And if they won't give them to us to wrest them from those who would use them against us, because this is our country too. And it has taken over 400 years for us to amass the numbers and the allyship to make certain that we don't have to sit with the systems we have, but can build new systems that do what they should. Are you ready to unlock your inner greatness? If so, make sure to listen to my podcast, The School of Greatness, hosted by me, Lewis Howes. Join me as I sit down with world-class performers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders to uncover their secrets to success with new episodes every single week. Whether you're striving for personal growth, business mastery, or simply seeking inspiration, The School of Greatness has something for you. And you can find it on SiriusXM, Pandora, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe and follow to the show so you never miss an episode and start your journey to greatness today. Bishop uh, William, thank you so much, uh, Stacey Abrams. You know, Bishop William Barber II is the president of Repairers of the Breach and the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, I know that when you're the minister in charge of trying to calm everybody else's hearts, people often don't think to ask how you are doing. You have seen a, a protest or two in your lifetime. And how do you think this one is different? Well, thank you so much, Oprah, and to your other, other guests who are here. I, I think righteous rage is a part of what we're supposed to have. Uh, so rage is there, despair is there, hope is there uh, in the midst of all of this. Um, first of all, I think there's several points I'd just like to make. Racism has always had death in it. That Racism can't exist without death in it. Whether it's the racism that did the genocide to Native people, or the racism and the slavery and the way in which people were kept in their place, or the racism that was put in the Constitution, the Second Amendment and the militia, was all about death. It was about using death to, to control people, the death in Jim Crow, the death in separate but equal, the death in um, with, with people uh, uh, separate uh, in schools. We are this screaming and this anguish, this pain. When I first heard of it, three things real quickly happened to me. Number one, I saw the same thing Stacy saw, the pose of the death. I had seen that a hundred times in the South when people were hunting. I'd seen it, posing on an animal. Uh, it, was, it was eerie. The other thing that happened was my son just watching him cry and, and holding him and cursing with him and joining him in that pain because my scriptures tell me to mourn with those who mourn and cry with those who cry. Lastly, I'd like to say I think the whole country is in mourning, because we have to look some, as, 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 as the, in, in scripture studies, we call it the zits and laban, the setting of the time. In Pentecostal, we call it discernment. So think about it, before COVID came, we had over 250,000 people dying every year from poverty, according to Columbia University. And if black folk are 61% of all poor and low wealth people, then a whole lot of us are dying from poverty. We had thousands of people dying from the lack of health care. Then COVID hits, we have 100,000 people die. Then we find out most of them didn't have to die. They died because the state didn't protect the first thing it's supposed to, and that is life. Life is the first thing the state is supposed to. And then we see this public lynching this officer who's operating in the our name and in the state's name literally snuffed, you know, just pose and push down and take the life of George Floyd. And it's almost like in that moment, we're in so much death that when George Floyd says, I can't breathe, it's like a collective gasp. 
That's why I think we can't miss this moment of black and white and brown and Asian. I've been working the last three years in the Poor People's Campaign, and we've been organizing folk in the mountains of Kentucky, and we've been organizing in the delta of Mississippi. And one thing, we, we start with, with racism. We say there are five interlocking justices. When Dr. King said, where did we go from here? He mentioned three. We talk about five. Systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, denial of health care, the war economy, and militarization of our communities, and this false moral narrative of religious nationalism that, that, that tries to consecrate all this evil. And we are working with people of all different races, creeds, and color that have decided to fix America, you have to deal with race. I don't care whether you're black, white, brown, whatever. And it has to be a multicultural coalition that Dr. King envisioned at the end of the Selma to Montgomery March. And he said every time black and white people have the possibility of coming together, the aristocracy and the bourbon class deliberately slows division to keep that from happening because they know that's the hope to break this thing open. That's what's happening out in the streets, I think. Let's talk about these historic protests. There's been continuous marches and protests in cities all across America that turned even more peaceful as the days went on. And we've never seen anything like this before in our lifetimes with people around the world joining forces. Paris and London and Berlin and New Zealand. I know you all saw this video that went viral this week. I just want to pull a clip of it because uh, Kimberly Jones, who just let it fly. So when they say, why do you burn down the community? Why do you burn down your own neighborhood? It's not ours. We don't own anything. We don't own anything. There is, Trevor Noah said it so beautifully last night. There's a social contract that we all have, that if you steal or if I steal, then the person who is the authority comes in and they fix the situation. But the person who fixes the situation is killing us. So the social contract is broken. You broke the contract when for 400 years, we played your game and built your wealth. You broke the contract when we built our wealth again on our own by our bootstraps in Tulsa and you dropped bombs on us. When we built it in Rosewood and you came in and you slaughtered us. You broke the contracts and they are lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. Ava DuVernay, you sent me that tape and we were talking about Don't that. Put me I was on saying, camera, you know, lucky that what black people are looking for is equality, not revenge, and also indigenous people looking for equality and not revenge. You say that so many people have been sidetracked by the looting and have little regard for the truth of what's happening, Ava. You want to speak to that tape and this moment? Well, I love the tape. I sent it to you and I, I said, I don't, I don't know if you're going to like the end of this tape but maybe you'll find some things in the inside that you like. She gets a little riled up at the end. I said, I love the whole thing. And yeah. I was surprised you wrote me back and you're like, I like the end of it. So I'm glad <laughs> I love you, the end of it. I'm glad you, I'm glad but, you showed But you me. think I can't handle a couple of cuss, cuss, cuss words? Come on, <laughs> you think I can't handle a couple of MFs in there? Okay. <laughs> But now I know. Okay. Um, no, what I like about what she says, you know, she has a whole, and if folks haven't seen the tape, you can go on and Google, it's gone viral. Yeah. She talks a lot about, you know, this idea of 400 years, and she frames it in this idea of a monopoly game that's unfair. Folks that have a challenge understanding, you know, the whole idea of, 
of, of where the rage comes from and, and where their privilege comes from. The, the sister encapsula encapsulates what a lot of books and documentaries talk about in, in a quick five minutes. Um, I think the thing for me that uh, around the whole idea of, of protesters and rioters and looting is this, uh, you know, how it's all been conflated in in the mainstream media. And, uh, and you know, you have some folks that have been trying to be careful to parse it out, but I know that as I watched our local news here in Los Angeles, it's kind of all mixed together when they're all very separate things. Um, you know, certainly you have folks that have said, you know, gosh, they're losing the message. They're watering down the message because, you know, they protest in the day and they loot at night. This is, you know, taking the steam away from the, what the mission could be. And I just really invite people to think about, you know, if your concern with the murder of Black people by police can be deterred or shifted because someone is taking a pair of jeans from a target, then you've got to look at how much you cared about the murder of the mm -hmm. Black people by the police to begin with. It's as if... I was gonna care about black people being murdered, but that guy took those shoes, so I don't know now. That's how ridiculous it sounds to me. And so it's really about forward-thinking people, people who truly believe in justice and dignity for all. I know that's all kinds of people that do feel that way. You know, watch yourself as you're as you're playing this game of respectability politics because you're getting into a place that really is veering way off the path of what the point at hand is, which is, um, which which starts from a place of the murder of black people by police and really opens up to an interrogation of a whole system. You know, no one's talking about, you know, the the economic inequalities that may lead people to want to go through a, a glass door to get a pair of shoes. No one's talking about the systems that encompass all of the actions that we're seeing. But truly what sticks in my craw is that whole idea of Gosh, you know, if only they, they didn't break that window, I would have continued to care about this death. Rashad, you're shaking your head. Yeah. Yes, and I mean, I think, I couldn't agree more. I think that this really does sort of, um, you know, speak to then how do we, how do we like, get there? How do we move it? Because continuing, we have all of these forces that continue to stand in the way of progress. We will bring people together. We will have people on our side. Today, I will say 7 million people have taken action with us in the last eight months. Over five million people have taken action with us on SMS. I'm saying people of all races, I'm saying that the folks who are coming in are a lot whiter than the people who have come in during previous moments like Ferguson, like when Trayvon Martin was killed and uh, Sandra Bland committed suicide in a Waller County jail. When those moments happened, the, the influx of people looked different. And so I want us to all be clear that we have to be aspirational about what we want. And we have to deal with the fact that we cannot continue to reform a system that was built on faulty ground and that was it is acting and operating exactly the way it was intended to operate. We have to disrupt it and we have to do everything we possibly can. And I'm hoping that the political leaders will use all of their sort of might and intellect and understanding to join with us at figuring that out. You know, we've known for decades that p police disproportionately are killing black men. And this was just the first time America and the world saw it unfold in front of their eyes. There's a video I know you've all seen of that little bitty black girl who spoke to a police officer and asked him if he was going to shoot her. And a lot of uh, white people were astounded that this young girl, this itty bitty little girl thought that she was going to be hurt by the police because if you are white, the police are protection, but for 
so many black people in this country, it's ingrained not to trust the police. I remember Ava, you, when we had a conversation uh, around when they see us, you were telling the story of police coming into your yard and that left a traumatic impression as a young girl. You want to share that? Yeah, police came into our backyard and uh, we grew up in the south cities of Los Angeles. Police came in and I remember coming out of the house and seeing my father, my proud, beautiful father on the ground um, in our own backyard, um, wrestled to the ground by, by police, um, who said that he fit the description of someone who was running in through the neighborhood. He was in his own backyard. And so seeing that was traumatizing um, as a young person, but fit in with all of the, 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 the police aggression that I grew up with living in Compton and Long Beach and Linwood here in LA, just a, a, a continuous presence always around. So when I see police, I do not think they're here to protect me. As I grew up, we did not call the police if there was an issue, we called each other, we dealt with it um, because the police, calling police is, is the sure way for something to go wrong more often than not for a lot of black people in this country. And I want to talk about black death for a moment. Yes, it's the police, but 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 we but, but but thousands of people die every year in our community from the lack of health care. One lady called it public policy mass murder from the lack of living wages. And we have the money to do this. If we provided health care for everybody, thousands of people, black folk, would live every year. If healthcare was connected to your body and your humanity, but not to your job, well, why is it not? Remember when the 40 acres and the mule, but remember the Freedmen's Bureau Hospital. It was one of the first things that was cut after slavery toward the end of, de of deconstruction, reconstruction. Why? Because they did not want to fund something that would keep Black people alive. We have to look deep into this stuff. 54% of all African-Americans make less than a living wage. We must make sure in this moment of all this upheaval that we don't ask for too little, that we understand we talk about Black death and what's causing it and the policy solutions to that death that, 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 that can happen right now. Lastly, I heard someone the other day say, well, what we need is to stop chokeholds. And that, that's the thing we need. No, we need also a federal law that people can be charged under for murder that will guarantee apprehension, prosecution, and incarceration. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Bishop. I think this uh, point by Reverend Barber is really critical, and it's a point I really want to get across, which is the thinking too small, because this is really a time where we can expand on Black economic inequality. And that's fundamentally what we need to be addressing. There was some devastating data that came out uh, earlier this week that said uh, Black Americans' wealth has been stagnant for 70 years, that it would take the combined wealth of 11 and a half Black families to equal the wealth of one white family, and that attending college does absolutely nothing to mitigate that wealth gap. So Black people who do everything right, get a college degree, have less wealth than white Americans who have not even completed high school. So when we look at that type of gap, so much of your crime that we're trying to solve is an issue of poverty. So much of the, the societal issues that we're having to deal with are issues of poverty. The very reason we had racism and uh, the international slave trade was economic exploitation. 
the period of Jim Crow, the 100 years of racial terrorism, was a period of ex economic exploitation. And Black people are dealing with a gap where uh, Professor Sandy Darity and um, Derek Hamilton say there is nothing that Black people can do on their own to mitigate the wealth gap, that we can do everything right and it will not change the wealth gap one bit. So I hope that as we are, you know, some polling came out by Monmouth University that showed 76% of Americans believe that racism against Black Americans is widespread and systemic. We have never in the history of polling seen numbers that high. That includes 71% of white Americans who actually believe that systemic racism is a major problem for Black Americans. So we can't just be talking about policing. If we're going to talk about that, we also need to be trying to put forth an economic agenda that would have to include reparations, because there is no way without actually paying reparations to the descendants of those enslaved that we can deal with the economic gap that Black people perennially have 70 years of, of unchanged um, wealth, even as Black people have become more middle class, even as Black people have become more educated, our wealth gap remains the same. So I hope that we can use this moment of kind of unprecedented reckoning of the ongoing legacy of slavery to demand not just police reforms, uh, but to demand those economic reforms that are so critical for equality. Dr. King said that the 64 Civil Rights Act and the 65 Voting Rights Act was uh, civil rights and equality on the cheap, that white people didn't have to give up anything to allow us the right to sit in a cafe, that the hardest battle was going to be an economic redistribution that actually allowed Black Americans to have the power that comes with wealth. He said that it doesn't do any good to have the right to go in a restaurant and buy a hamburger if you can't afford to buy the hamburger. And that's what we're seeing in America right now. And I hope that uh, we will fundamentally be able to address that in this time. And you know what? I think it's so important. I'm going to end there for this hour because I think so many people are focused, as should be, on this moment and what is going on in our communities with the police. But what you all have all said here tonight is that it's a much broader issue and allowing people to see that in a way that they're willing to work for systemic change is where we want to go from here. Our conversation uh, will continue tomorrow night and we're asking this essential question of where do we go from here? Thank you, everybody. I'm Oprah Winfrey and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening.